0: Please look with me this morning at Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10 is what we're going to take this morning. Um, I'm going to be mentioning the kingdom again in, in coming weeks because we're looking at really this whole passage, but I want to zero in on just four verses this morning. We've spent several weeks working through the return of the Lord to establish his worldwide kingdom on the earth where he will, where he will reign for a thousand years. It's the climax of world history, both chronologically and theologically, as all of the promises that God made to Israel are finally realized. But our final destiny as believers in Christ is not to live in fallen physical bodies on the earth, nor to inhabit the original heaven and earth in resurrected bodies. Nor do we live in heaven forever, as some people think. Heaven is the temporary abode of the righteous. That's the orthodox definition of heaven. Our final rest, our eternal life, is on the new earth that we read about at the end of Revelation, chapters 21 and 22. And I'm looking forward to really probing those chapters before our fall is over. Our fall, the season, the fall is over, okay? Gotta <laughs> be careful when you're talking about the Bible, right? But before we come to the description of that final rest, there is a period of closure that takes place when all evil and rebellion and all that has ever scorned or blasphemed God is finally judged, when the score is finally settled, when all wrongs are righted, when all sin is judged. And this period of time begins with the final doom of the devil himself. Let's begin reading here in Revelation chapter twenty. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison in the abyss and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All well-known stories have their villains. Uh, I realize that in some stories, the struggle is people versus nature or people versus things that are going on in, in themselves in, in, in good stories. But in classic storytelling, there is usually a villain, a person who is trying to stop the hero from reaching his or her goal. You don't have to be a literature buff to know who I'm talking about when I mention the big bad wolf or the wicked stepmother or Cruella DeVille or the Wicked Witch of the West, or any number of witches in the classic stories, like Narnia's White Witch, the Green Knight, the Sheriff of Nottingham, Count Dracula, Javert, and Les Miserables, Professor Moriarty, Sauron, and for you pop culture nerds out there, dare I mention Darth Vader, (laughs) or Voldemort, he who must not be named, but if you recognize these villains, you also know the stories. You could, you could hear the name of the villain and you could tell me what the story is and who the heroes are and what they wanted in the story. And you could also tell me the terrible, unjust things that the villain was doing. To try to stop them and destroy them. The villains always want to kill or oppress or generally make lives miserable. But the hero wants to save people. He wants to free them. He wants to, to find justice for the oppressed. And when we are reading those stories or watching them on stage or on the screen, and we're caught up in the story, we don't find rest in our spirit until that hero is vindicated and the, the villain is defeated until that villain gets what he or she deserves. Nearly 2,400 years ago, Aristotle wrote about this journey of emotions that people take when they watch a play as the hero of the story succeeds and the villain of the story is defeated. He called it a catharsis, which, which is, means a, a cleansing or a purging in Greek. He said that the tragedy we are watching arouses feelings of terror and pity for the main characters of the story as they are threatened or oppressed or have to overcome seemingly impossible odds in order to succeed. But when they finally do succeed and when they are exalted and the villain gets what he deserves, there is this release of those negative pent-up emotions of angst and fear and pity and we leave the theater cleansed, he said. Now we are filled with joy and peace and hope and we can feel that we can go on with our lives and face our own villains and be successful in what we want to do. I think that Aristotle and those philosophers who have come to uh, reflect on this catharsis after Aristotle are by and large correct in their observations about what takes place in our hearts and in our minds. When we identify with the main characters of a story and we feel their pain and we yearn with them for victory over their trials, but only because I believe they recognize, these philosophers, something that is common among human beings who are created in the image of God. I believe that we go through this catharsis in a classic hero story because we are all living out, whether we realize it or not, the big story, the true story that the Bible gives us. And we are inside this story, the story that began in the creation in Genesis 1 and 2, where all in the world is at peace and harmony with God, where the villain Satan enters from stage left to deceive and corrupt peace with God and peace in the world. And the long history that has ensued ever since of God raising up a hero, a conqueror, to, pull, to, to put down all that is evil, and to destroy those who are supposed to try to reign over us, who try to oppress us, and to give ultimate victory to that conqueror and his people. This is the big story that is playing out in all of human history. And even if a person is not even aware of the story, they know intuitively that something is terribly wrong with the world, that something is oppressing them, that they need a rescuer to deliver them. And I think that people in general experience this catharsis because deep within them is a longing for deliverance. They want to feel hope. They yearn for things to be right. And they can experience a sense of things being right through drama or story. But for those who do not know Jesus Christ, this catharsis is only a temporary release The only way we can know true catharsis is to be cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ, the captain of our faith, the champion of our salvation, who literally conquered death and hell and Satan so that we can conquer the forces of darkness through him. As we examine this text, these four verses we've just read, what we see is something remarkable. I think we see in this text a recapitulation, a summary of the devil's entire mission and program. Only in this recapitulation of the story of the rise and fall and final doom of the devil is recorded for us here in this inspired word of God, assuming, uh, assuring us of the devil's ultimate defeat, strengthening our resolve, renewing our hope, emboldening our witness. Jesus wants us to know the story. And he wants us to respond to it, and I think there are five themes in this recapitulation that repeats the story of the devil that allows us to review the devil's rise and fall and ultimate destruction. And what I'm attempting to do this morning uh, is to look at each of these themes as they play out in the text and demonstrate how the devil has never changed. In his mission, it's always the same. And yet his doom has always been certain. Let's explore these five themes. The first one is this, the devil's absence from a peaceful world. The devil's absence from a peaceful world. Look at what the text says. It begins, and when the thousand years are ended. We've already seen in our previous studies, those thousand years began back in verses 1 and 3, 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation 20, when the devil was confined with a great chain cast into the bottomless pit so he could not do his work anymore in the world. For the first time since the devil appears in Genesis chapter 3, for the first time since the fall of humanity, Satan, the devil, is locked up. He's imprisoned during the thousand years. And what happens while he is forced out of the picture. He's forced off the stage. What happens is what the Old Testament describes in the kingdom as a time of unprecedented peace and prosperity on this planet. The globe we now inhabit, as as Micah read this morning, where the lion or the wolf lies down with the lamb, where the child plays with the cobra and nobody's scared and nobody's hurt. It makes us think of what it must have been like in the Garden of Eden before sin had entered the stage. Adam and Eve living in harmony with God and with one another and all of the creation gathered peacefully around in a glorious place. The last verse of Genesis 2 says, the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. That's not so much a comment on their marital oneness as a comment on the fact that there was complete openness, complete transparency in the world, a world of absolute peace. The millennial kingdom will not be the Garden of Eden because it's still going to be inhabited by those with fallen human natures. For Half of them, anyway, will have that. But it will be the next best thing, a world where Christ is ruling, where wickedness is immediately put down, and where righteousness flourishes. We have to appreciate that kind of world before we can understand how the devil corrupts and destroys what God has created. Before we can fully realize how devastated our world is today by comparison, how dark and lost humanity has become. So the next time we come to the text, we come to another theme the devil's work to deceive. So we've got this this absence from this peaceful world and it brings us to his work to deceive. Look at verse seven. It continues, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. We might say from the four winds of the earth, that's the ancient expression, four corners or four winds. It means all over the earth, all over the earth, worldwide, where everybody has been prospering. And notice that Satan is released according to the plan of God. It says, he came out to deceive. It's a purpose phrase, both here in the original Greek language. This is why Satan comes out of his prison. You see that there? He came out to deceive. He comes out for the purpose of deceiving. And just as the state of the world recapitulates the theme of the perfect world before the fall, so the purpose of Satan recapitulates the diabolical work of Satan that has always been at work in the world. He is a deceiver. The word for deceive is the word from which we derive our word planet. It means wandering one. The ancients did not understand the distinction between stars and planets like we do. They only recognized that when they looked up in the sky, some of the lights were fixed and they all sort of turned together through the night sky. But some of them wandered. There were were a handful of them that that didn't stay fixed. They were in a different place every night. And so they called these wandering ones or planets. They, They would wander off the path. And that is the devil's goal. He knows that God has a fixed path that expresses his will and that people that he has created are called to follow that path, but the devil will attempt to lead us astray, to cause us to wander from the path. And the devil has always, he's always tried to deceive the people that God created. Once in a conversation with the Pharisees in John 8, the Pharisees insinuated that Jesus had been born out of wedlock. Read read John 8. I mean, they basically, that's what they say. And they're like, you know, we know who your father is, they tell him. Well, Jesus isn't having it in John 8. He says, well, your father's the devil and and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. The devil is a lying murderer from the beginning because it was his deception that lured Adam and Eve into sin that brought death to them and death to the world. The first words out of the crafty serpent's mouth that we read of in the scripture, the serpent that was controlled by the devil, were, did God actually say? He immediately puts Eve on the defensive, placing her in a position of having to defend the word of God. And so she starts explaining herself. And soon, rather than merely questioning the word of God, Satan contradicts the truth of God. You will not surely die. (laughs) Wow. Was there ever a greater lie? You will not surely die. Every time a loved one passes away into eternity, every time we hear in the news of another shooting, which you might have heard of even this morning, every time we attend a funeral, we ought to remember that Satan told Eve, You will not surely die. And if he is lying about that, don't you think he could be lying about anything else as well? He is the father of lies. Then Satan deceived Eve by impugning the motives of God. He told her basically, God is just holding you back. I mean, he knows if you eat that, you'll be like him. You'll be like a God. We don't know how long Eve contemplated those words before she decided to disobey the command and and then give the fruit to Adam, who consciously, through his own choice, ate that fruit and cast off God's authority. But as Paul said, by this man, death entered the world. And the earth has never been the same ever since. We don't have time to trace the work of the devil through the Old and New Testaments, how maliciously he tested Job, how he causes trouble for the nation of Israel, such as the time when he he led David through deception to number the people. And the time he brought an accusation against Joshua, the high priest, and Zechariah. And we don't have time to trace this, the tireless and complicated work of Satan represented in the Gospels. That's a fascinating study. Or the warning after warning in the New Testament about the, the, the devil as, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But so many times the, the New Testament uses this verb planet, planao, to lead astray. Satan wants, us to, to, wants to lead us astray. If we can look for just a moment though, at the book of Revelation, we can see that Satan's skill as a deceiver has never waned over these years. He always is about deception. In Revelation 12, verse 9, he is called the deceiver of the whole world. In Revelation 13, 4, we're not surprised to see the false prophet who serves the devil deceives those who dwell on the earth. And this deception is mentioned again in Revelation nineteen twenty as the reason the false prophet and the Antichrist are cast into the lake of fire. Because of their deception, they deceive the world. In Revelation 18, verse 23, the nations were deceived by the sorcery of the dragon's kingdom. And in Revelation 20, verse 3, the reason Satan is imprisoned in the abyss is specifically so that he will not deceive the nations any longer, at least for a time. Deception is all about him. As Jesus said, he speaks out of his own character whenever he's lying. And I say this as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have to beware the attack of the devil. We have to be cunning like him. We have to be aware that he wants to do this to us. He's a deceiver. He wants to lead us from the path. He, whatever forces he is, is wrecking with, and, and chances are Satan doesn't know you and I exist. I'm glad for that. I don't want to call attention to myself with him directly. Uh, you, you don't get the idea that he's this, this imaginary character that's always looking at you. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not eternal. He's one powerful being, but he has forces that he commands at work and they know of our existence and they are carrying out his will. He wants you to think that you are doing a virtuous thing by reaching outside of God's will and coming up with reasons that you are the exception to what God says in his word, reaching outside his authority, the authority that he has graciously placed in your life because because you're being held back. You're not being allowed to have what you deserve or what you can express with your life. Rather than asking what is God's will, we are deceived into caring so much about our pleasure or our style or our vibe or what people think about us. Set all of that aside until we have thought about what God wants, until we have listened carefully to and obey the word of God because you have to believe the scripture when it says that this devil is actively in the world using every diabolical force available to him to deceive, to blind, to lead us into a different path. So what is that path where he wants to lead us? The answer is expressed in the third theme that we see in this text. That's a recapitulation of the activity of the devil in all of the scriptures. And that is, thirdly, the devil's goal of rebellion. He wants to lead us against God. If we keep reading verse 8 in our text, we discover why the devil is deceiving the nations of the earth. John says that the devil deceives in order to gather the nations from all over the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. The nations called Gog and Magog are a couple of the nations that are probably prominent when all the nations come together from all the millennial kingdom, those whom Satan deceives, who, do, who, who have not believed in Christ, who now believe that they can conquer him. And they are brought together. It actually fulfills the prophecy that Ezekiel speaks of in Ezekiel chapter 38. And you know what? Uh, I want to take the time to just read through this entire chapter of Ezekiel 38. I know this might put us a few minutes longer than what I wanted to do, just a few minutes, but uh, I keep getting encouraged by a lot of you after I finish preaching, don't stop, keep going. It could have been a lot longer. So it's their fault if, if we go a little bit long this morning. Um, but you will hear, I, I want to read this because it's fascinating. You will hear in this prophecy the very event that is being described in Revelation 20 that comes upon the people of God who have been living securely in the millennial kingdom with all the peace and all the safety, with no walls or locks on their doors, living in harmony with one another. And the devil, when he is loosed, puts the idea into the minds of the yet unbelieving from far and wide to come with their armies and surround the righteous to bring bloodshed and plunder and destruction into the kingdom. The vision that John sees of the the saints in the middle and everybody surrounding, it may not go down exactly like that. This is John's vision, the the representation of what is going to happen. But Ezekiel describes this event in chapter 38. Listen to the words of the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. Set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshech and Tubal, and I will turn you about and put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed in full armor, a great host, all of them with buckler and sealed, and shields, wielding swords, Persia and Cush and Put are with them, all of them with shield and helmet, Gomer and all his hordes, uh, Beth Targama from the uttermost parts of the north with all his hordes, many peoples are with you, peoples all over the earth are coming. All these armies, be ready and keep ready, you and all your hosts that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be mustered. In the latter years, you will go against the land that is restored from war, the land whose people were gathered from many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which had been a continual waste before the Lord's reign, Its people were brought out from the peoples and now dwell securely, all of them. You will advance coming on like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land. You and all your hordes and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, thoughts will come into your mind. The deception of the devil. And you will devise an evil scheme and say, I will go up against the land of the unwalled villages. I will fall upon the quiet people who dwell securely, all of them living, a dwelling without walls and having no bars or gates to seize and spoil and carry off plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places that are now inhabited and the people who were gathered from the nations who've acquired livestock and goods who dwell at the center of the earth. Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its leaders will say to you, Have you come to see spoil? Have you assembled your host to carry off plunder, to carry away silver and gold, to take away livestock and goods, to, seal, uh, to seize great spoil? Therefore, son of man, prophesy and say to Gog, Thus says the Lord God, on that day when my people are dwelling securely. Will you not know it? You will come from your place out of the uttermost parts of the north. You and many peoples with you, all of them riding on horses, a great host, a mighty army. You will come up against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land that the nations may know me when through you, O God, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Thus says the Lord God, and you of he whom I spoke in former days by my servants, the prophets of Israel, who in those days prophesied for years that I would bring you against them. But on that day, the day that God shall come against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, my wrath will be roused in my anger. For in my jealousy and in my blazing wrath, I declare on that day, there shall be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the fields and all creeping things that creep on the ground and all the people who are on the face of the earth shall quake at my presence and the mountains shall be thrown down and the cliffs shall fall and every wall shall tumble to the ground. I will summon a great sword against Gog. On all my mountains, declares the Lord God, every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and bloodshed, I will enter into judgment with him and I will rain upon him and his hordes and the many peoples who are with him, torrential rains and hailstones, fire and sulfur. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. You can see as you read this prophecy how closely it aligns with the events that are described here in Revelation 20 as soon as Satan gets his chance. After a thousand years in confinement, he has not changed one bit. He rushes to deceive the unbelievers in the earth to lead them in rebellion against all that is good, against all that is peaceful, against all that is right, all that has been blessed by God. This is where the deception of Satan always leads to the goal, his goal of rebellion. He wants to turn God's creation inside out, upside down. If creation trends right, Satan will go left. If creation trends up, Satan will go down. And we can see his handiwork today whenever we look at the world. You take any part of human society in which the Bible makes God's design known and Satan is reversing that work. He's turning it inside out, what God intended. In the creation account, God gives his blessing to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and fill the earth with children. Satan wants the world to believe that the opposite is actually more desirable, that the birth of children must be controlled, that for a woman to take control of her body and abort her child is virtuous and responsible. And if we say that isn't so, then we are cruelly oppressing women. We are the villains. In the creation account, God creates male and female and calls for marriage to be defined as one man and one woman dedicated to each other alone for life. But the subtle and progressive deception of the devil has so corrupted and blinded our thinking in this culture that to affirm what God has ordained makes you appear ungracious or out of touch or bigoted or oppressive on our culture. As one journal put it, Western society has created an oppressive gender binary falsely dividing the world into the categories of man and women that has resulted in transphobia, uh, uh, cis-sexism, and systemic discrimination against racial and sexual minorities. That's, what, that's, that's, that's a light version of what we're being told we are. If we say, this is what God says. I don't even know what some of the terms mean anymore when I'm reading some of this stuff. My daughter told me last week that the largest children's hospital in Chicago she was alarmed by this because our, our, our little granddaughter is in this hospital system. The largest children's hospital in Chicago now offers a full line of services for children who want to explore an identity outside of their assigned gender. Services for gender-questioning youth and for gender, uh, transgender and gender-fluid youth. And this developing situation goes much more than I would ever state publicly. But if you suggest that this is not right or good or moral, you are the villain of the story in people's minds. But the truth is the devil is actually the villain. He reeks of death and evil and destruction. And his only goal is to darken and twist the minds of people to hold a conviction that is the antithesis of what God commanded. He is still using all of his demonic forces to whisper into the ears of people everywhere, has God actually said? And we can go on and on this morning about the moral blindness of our culture, the various ways sin is justified. I'm not trying to target these sins in any particular way, only perhaps because we're always seeing them played out right now in the media, wherever we look on a daily basis. But what you are seeing is the influence of the world's greatest deceiver who knows his time is soon over, who is trying to take as many with him to judgment as he can. And he will never rest day or night. And so we should never rest. We should never let our guard down. But as bad as the world seems, as dark as it appears at times, we are certain of another theme that we see played out in this text that is a recapitulation of the devil's existence. And it is this, the devil's decisive defeat by God, his decisive defeat. At the end of verse nine, John says, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. That quick, that decisively. Satan's last bid for dominance His last attempt at rebellion, over. Reminiscent to the way that Ezekiel 38 describes it, fire rains down from heaven, destroying the army set against the saints of God. This is not the first time that Satan has been defeated. This account recapitulates the scene that the Apostle Paul refers to nearly 2,000 years ago when the Lord Jesus defeated the devil through the cross work and the resurrection. In fact, in Colossians 3, Paul writes these words, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is with Jesus Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. That is, he, he, he set aside that debt, nailing it to the cross. And notice what he says in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As Jesus hung on the cross, Satan and his host surrounding Filled with demonic glee, rushing upon him to finish him. At last, they were thinking, they had won. They were going to defeat God. His plan had failed and they flung himself, themselves on him. But had they known the wisdom of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 the rulers of this age would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Jesus seemed weak and defeated, but he met their onslaught with divine eternal power and crushed them all. In verse 15, Paul here is harnessing the metaphor of a mighty warrior, triumphant in battle. He disarmed his enemies and our enemies. In other words, he literally stripped them of their armor. That's the idea in the Greek text. He stripped them of their armor and their weaponry. He put them to open shame, Paul says, which means that he held them aloft in victory for all to see. Or maybe it means here that he led them as captives in a procession as a mighty king would do after he defeated his enemies in order to triumph over them. You've got both images going on here. In other words, through his cross work, Jesus Christ won the decisive and ultimate victory over all of the hosts of darkness and his resurrection from the dead demonstrates that he is deed victorious over the host of hell, over the devil, over death itself. And now Satan knows his end is coming. He has failed to conquer the son, the king, the Savior. He is like a wild, flailing dragon and destroying everything he can before the end. That's what Satan is doing right now. But as we've seen time and time again in reading through Revelation, Satan can only do what God allows him to do. In Revelation 12, you might remember Satan is cast down from heaven. I think this takes place about the middle of the tribulation period. He's cast down from heaven. He has no more access. And he's not allowed to approach God anymore like he does in Job. And a loud voice cries out in that chapter, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Why? Because Satan's cast down. But woe to you, O earth, woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows his time is short. After that, we see the devil's forces defeated at the Battle of Armageddon in chapter 19. We've looked at that recently where the other members of this unholy trinity, the Antichrist and the false prophet, are cast alive into the lake of fire. Then the devil is put at the beginning of chapter 20 into confinement. And then he's let loose from the abyss at the divine direction of God. But after this latest defeat, Satan's time has finally come. His deception and wrath and hatred and fury are ended for all eternity in order to prepare the way for the perfect new earth where righteousness will completely dwell. Absolutely. So finally, we see a new theme in the story of the devil, but one that has been anticipated for a long time. We find here the devil's final and utter destruction. And we see that in verse 10, of our text. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I'm preparing to address the subject of the literal lake of fire and sulfur. It is really a horrifying but amazing thing. And I'm not going to start going into that this morning. But for those who want to take the position that this just refers to annihilation, that there is not this conscious suffering in hell. Notice that the devil is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were thrown in back in chapter 19. And then notice John says they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The beast and the false prophet will have already been tormented for a thousand years before Satan is cast in there. This is the end of the devil. There isn't even any question of his escape or his success in the battle against the Lord, the master of deception who brought sin into the world, our archenemy who troubles us, who blinds people to their need for the gospel, who seeks to bring the world to its knees to honor him rather than Jesus Christ. This is his end in this text. He is utterly and unspeakably destroyed. And this text rehearses the whole story of the devil recapitulating the themes that we find in Scripture, from the beautiful world he corrupted to his deception, rebellion, defeat, and ultimate doom. Jesus Christ appears to John on the island of Patmos because he wants John to write all of this down for our encouragement because there is a way that Jesus wants us to live right now because we know Satan's doom is for sure. Do you know how he wants us to live? He wants us to live, for instance, with the certainty that we will never face the wrath of God because our conqueror, our captain, our Lord Jesus Christ is the victor over Satan and sin and death. He wants us to live with that in mind. Paul proclaimed, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know how Jesus wants us to live? He wants us to live assured of God's never-ending love for us. Because neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And with Satan's final defeat, we know that is for sure the truth. Do you know how Jesus wants us to live? Because of the certain end of the devil. He wants us to be unafraid as we face the future. Unafraid. Because we know now for certain that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You know how he wants us to live? Jesus wants us to live by saying no to the devil's influence, to the devil's deception. He tells us in his word, resist the devil and he will flee from you because he's a defeated enemy. We don't have to live deceived or defeated or discouraged. In fact, one author put it this way, we should live every day so that if the devil were to watch our testimony... He would be reminded that we have already conquered him in Christ, that his time is short, that he cannot touch us, that his end is coming. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Father, thank you for...